You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of James. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James chapter 2 as we continue our study through this book dealing with the topic of mercy. I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 13. And if you are able, would you stand with me as we read through these verses? James chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. James writes as follows. He says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God? He promised to those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep, uh, keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself... You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak And act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's begin the prayer. Father, we ask for your help as we take this time to look to your word, and we pray, God, that you would grant us understanding minds, that you would give us receptive hearts. Lord, we don't want to be guilty as James described, being a hearer of the word but not being a doer of it. And yet we confess sometimes, Lord, we struggle in translation. We have trouble sometimes translating your truth into the activity of our daily life. And we're thankful, therefore, that you are a gracious and a merciful God who not only overlooks certain things but helps us to become what you want us to be. So grant us your grace, we pray, as we consider your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here's a trivia question for you. What is the most oft-repeated verse in the Old Testament being quoted over 14 different times from the book of Exodus all the way through the writing of Jonah? What verse comes to your mind? Uh, Well, the answer I, I think would surprise you But it's actually Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8, which reads this way. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, that is with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh, literally. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness 
maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Basically, the rabbis of ancient times concluded that in this passage, we are given really the two major themes of the Old Testament. On the one hand, we're told about the mercy of God, His unfailing compassion and grace and patience and long and ever-ready, inexhaustible desire to forgive our sins. But on the other hand, he says, but He also still remains a just God. And so we have these two things in somewhat of a tension. We have the, the justice of God, His holiness, His truth, juxtaposed to the mercy of God, which oftentimes, as he later says, rejoices or triumphs over the judgment. And as we go through the Old Testament as well as the New, we're given numerous examples of just how this works. I was thinking just in my own reading the other day, it was so amazing as I was reading the history of King Manasseh. King Manasseh of Judah is appropriately described as being the most wicked king who governed over Israel or Judah in that entire 400-year period history. He was a man who committed every possible criminal offense in the eyes of God, even to the point of sacrificing his own children to Molech and to Chemosh, the gods of the Ammonites and the Edomites. He did, I mean, the list of things that he did wrong is so long, so that finally God in judgment allows him to be taken captive by the Assyrians and carried away in chains 700 miles to the capital of Assyria. And then we read most astonishingly, he repents, asks for God's forgiveness, and he's released from prison and restored to his position as king over the land and lives there for the rest of his life, a repentant sinner for what he had done. If there was ever an individual who desired, or excuse me, who deserved to be exterminated, it was Manasseh. In fact, even the prophet Isaiah is really credited as having been executed, literally sawn in half by Manasseh. And yet God showed mercy upon that wicked man. We saw how he showed mercy to David. We see it in the New Testament as well in numerous examples of whether it be the, the woman who was taken in adultery or the woman at the well of Samaria. On and on the list go on of people who have clearly violated the just laws of God and done things that he said thou shalt not. And yet they have this one common ingredient. They humble themselves and plead for God's mercy and he grants it every single time. Amen. You see, we need to understand that even though we have these dual themes going through the Bible of God's justice and God's mercy, it is always mercy that trumps justice. That God is more concerned about blessed are the merciful than he is blessed are those who happen to be right. See, unfortunately, though, the tendency of religion is to kind of shovel out a lot of justice and measure out with a thimble mercy. It's like those of Jesus' day and of James's day. In fact, some of the same people that Jesus condemned in Matthew 23 were still operating when James was beginning his ministry. And of them, James or Jesus said, you give a tenth of your spices, but you neglect the more important matters of the law. Justice, or literally fairness, mercy and faithfulness, loyalty to God. 
You see, for the Jews of that time, living justly meant keeping the letter of the Mosaic law. It was more of a legal relationship than it was a personal relationship. And so when it came to things like tithing, they made sure that they were scrupulous to the extreme in making sure that they gave God 10% of everything, no matter how large or how small. But when it came to their relationship with other people, they weren't fair, they weren't merciful and forgiving, and they certainly didn't have loyalty because even parents were often thrown under the bus because it didn't suit the desires of their children. You see, what God was saying to them is, I want more. I want them to not only love things, but love the God who loves them. And I want you to love the things that I love. And what God loves is people. So that when he said to Micah way back in those days of that old prophet, he says, here's what's the good thing that you can do. You can do things that are just. In other words, you can live fairly. You can love mercy and you can walk humbly with your God. These are the things that I am looking for. So that in a sense, the legalism that we see that governed Judaism of Jesus' day didn't have a biblical justification that essentially, as men and women always do, we take God's word and we manipulate it, or as Paul said, we wrestle it to get it to fit into whatever happens to be our preference at the time. Which is why James begins here by saying to us, my brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. In other words, if you are a believer, don't claim to be a follower of Jesus and then do things that are in contradiction or things that Jesus himself would never be guilty of doing. I mean, when we look at the life of Jesus, we begin to find that he ran in such opposition to his culture because as Matthew 9, 13 says, that he went to the tax collectors and to the sinners and when he was criticized by hanging out with these people who were the ne'er-do-wells of that culture, he said, go read the scriptures and understand what it says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I'm not looking for your emphasis upon rule keeping and rituals. What I want you to be more than those things is people who are merciful to the people who are the rule breakers and the ritual violators. But their response was just the opposite. Their response was to take the rule breakers and the ritual violators and take them out and kill them. And Jesus said, no, I want you to show them mercy. We have that great story in Luke 18 where the, the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee are standing side by side praying and, and the Pharisee is lifting his hands up and his head, head looking up to heaven and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man because I do all of these good things. And the tax collector who is despised and reviled by his culture with head down, face that can't even lift off the ground, all he dares look to is his shoelaces and he says, God, have mercy upon me for I am a sinner. And Jesus' response was, which of these two men went home justified in the eyes of God today? And the implication is clear. It wasn't the man who saw no fault in himself. It was the man who saw that I am in desperate need of mercy. So it was that James again says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to 
be like Jesus. Those 55 different times in which Jesus speaks of showing mercy to people. And when people saw him, they cried out, have mercy upon me, son of God. Have mercy upon me, son of David. If you want to be like Jesus, and you need to do the things that Jesus did. He didn't play favorites. He didn't show partiality. He did not discriminate. In fact, some 21 times in the Old Testament, we find that it condemns this idea of being showing favoritism and partiality and injustice and prejudice. And it said it made no difference that every man, whether you were a rich man or you were a poor man, you were to be judged by the same rules and held to the same standards, but also to be given the same mercy when you cried out for it. Such was this a characteristic of Jesus that even his enemies, as they sought to destroy him, were forced to admit. They said, teacher, we know that you don't show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. But what is hard for most of us, myself included, is to see the tendencies even in ourselves to partiality and towards prejudice especially to those people who are different from us. It may be simply xenophobia, you know, that idea of the fear of strangers, but it's also part of our nature to see people as others. We divide the world into us and them. We divide them into ours and theirs. You know, even in our own context, we have the east-siders versus the west-siders. You know, we often say, can any good thing come out of Bellevue? (laughs) We often say that, you know, I I hear it all the time. It's either they're a Republican or a Democrat, a socialist, a communist, they're a patriot or a globalist, they're a boomer or a millennial. We just go through segregating people all the time into these different niches and categories. And maybe to some degree, it's just a way of organizing the world in our minds But in reality, people don't exist in those clear-cut categories. It's even when we talk about racial distinctions. One of the things we know today is that essentially race, it doesn't exist. That when you look at our chart of different racial or skin tones, it's a total rainbow from the lightest to the darkest and many degrees in between. So even the idea that we divide people into racial segregation is a complete deception because in reality... People are people, and that's it. There are no other differences. The problem isn't that we recognize that people do have certain differentiations. I mean, they do have things that separate us. Some people are taller. Some people are shorter. Some people support the Carolinas. Some support (laughs) Gonzaga. I mean, there are these differences But the problem isn't in that. The problem is that we fail to see value in someone because they are different. Quite honestly, as I was watching the game last night, what was so wonderfully refreshing to me was to hear the kind and complimentary way in which the winners spoke about those who lost and how those who lost spoke about those who won. There was a respect for what they had accomplished, not the typical trash talking that we often see associated with sports today, 
this effort to, quote, get into the other guy's head and diminish him. But you see, we especially do that when we don't see how another person has a benefit to us personally. And this really was James's issue. Because in his context, as the church began to suffer and, and become marginalized within their culture, when became, becoming a follower of Jesus began to accrue a lot of negative baggage in Jerusalem, and then they began to go in, suffer from outright persecution, one of the things that soon appeared was the, the shortage of necessary resources. So that when a rich guy showed up at the church, especially when the church's membership is made up of not the people in high places, but people in low places, they were the unemployed, the underemployed, those who had been enslaved and those who had been disfellowshipped from other synagogues. Well, when someone came in who was really laden with the evidence of great wealth, they took notice. In the much the same way we would if an identifiable celebrity were to walk into our midst today. People would take notice. But the problem wasn't that they took notice. They weren't supposed to sit there and pretend that the rich guy wasn't rich. But what they were supposed to do is realize that I shouldn't behave differently just because he is. To believe the de demonic lie that people's value is measured by their accoutrements. But because they took note of it, they became nicer and they became kinder and they became more attentive and more caring, sadly more than they had ever been before. The rich and the famous are accustomed and sometimes even demand that they be treated differently. I'm reminded of former President George Bush, the senior, when after he had left office losing in the election to Bill Clinton, he was asked by an interviewer, how has your life changed that now that you're no longer in the White House? And he says, well, mostly in my golf game, I don't win as much. <laughs> but the answer was and still is, and we all know this, we learned this in childhood, that we should treat everyone the same. It's like the, the kids who are building the cardboard clubhouse and they put the rules up for the clubhouse. Three simple rules. Nobody act big. Nobody act small. Everybody act medium. <laughs> that starts intuitively early in life, and yet somewhere along the line, we lose that. And I think that as we get older, we don't get better. We just get more sophisticated in how we sin. We cover our tracks better. We become less obvious now, I have to balance this a bit because does that mean that we have to see all people as being the same? And the answer is, of course not. We are not the same, but we are equal. And that's a critical distinction. Men and women are not the same, but they are equal. But we have to recognize those differences. And those differences sometimes matter immensely. 
But does that mean that we cannot notice those differences in other people or that we can't make any sort of judgment? In fact, that would be impossible. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 2.15, the spiritual man makes judgments about all things. So suddenly we find ourselves going, wait a minute, which way is it? Jesus says, don't judge. And here I'm told that the spiritual man judges all things. Well, part of the hint is that Paul is using two very different, or Paul and Jesus are using different words. When Jesus says, don't judge, it's a word that implies diminishing the character and worth and value of the other person. We often translate it, don't condemn, don't view them as being valueless. Now, the sad thing is today that oftentimes that's the most quoted verse by people who have just done something wrong. We hear it all the time when somebody says, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, don't judge me, bro. And, you know, the Bible tells you don't judge me. And I wish they would read all the rest of that passage because Jesus is saying don't condemn or view the person who does something wrong as having no value or worth and thereby just simply rejecting and walking away from them. But when you see something in somebody that they're doing is wrong, what you need to do, as Paul would later say to the Galatians, consider yourself lest you also be tempted. Look at it your own self. Take the beam out of your own eye? Why? So that you can take the splinter out of your brother's eye. The ultimate objective is that I can help my brother, my sister, who has something that is blinding them in their life, and I go to them, but I go to them in that spirit of humility, realizing that the reason I recognize that splinter in their eye is because I used to have a log in mine. But it doesn't mean that I refuse to confront, as many people put it. David Augsburg had a great book many years ago called Caring Enough to Confront. And so he's not saying here that we suspend all judgment and we can't recognize whether things are good or evil. We must. He says a spiritual man can't help but see that some things are true and some things are false. When we read the book of the Word of God, do we not call it the judgments of God? And is it not the measuring rod by which we evaluate the rightness and the wrongness, the goodness or the evil, the truth or the falsehood of anything I'm dealing with? That's not the problem. In fact, judging and making those judgments is the easiest thing in the world. I've looked at a lot of gifts in the Bible, but I've never come across the gift of judgment because it's something that you and I do intuitively. We do it naturally. Just I guarantee it when you get in your car and you won't even make it out of the parking lot, you'll be saying to yourself, what in the world is wrong with that nimrod? And, you know, you will have just passed judgment. Now, if it's me in the car, it's true judgment. <clears throat> I drive by faith oftentimes with my eyes closed. So it leads to some desperate consequences. But the whole point is, coming to that conclusion is the easiest part. And the more you know the word, the easier it is to see where people are walking in error. The easier it is for us to sometimes step back after a marathon of watching Fox News for six hours and sit back and saying, what the heck is wrong with these people? And never let it occur to us that God wants me to show mercy. That where he really wants me to end up is to be merciful. Then in a sense that judgment is not to be 
my default button, but rather mercy is. Because you see, we come to recognize hopefully at some point that if it wasn't for the mercy of God, we wouldn't survive. That when Paul describes the process of us coming to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ in writing to the Ephesians in the second chapter, in verses 4 and 5, he said, God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so very much that even while we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. God is so rich in mercy that even when you were as good as gone, dead as a doornail, as hopeless as hell itself, he still died on the cross so that you might experience God's mercy. Aren't you thankful? <laughs> Aren't you thankful that God didn't show partiality or favoritism? Because what partiality and favoritism really are is a form of judgmentalism. It's looking at two people and saying to the one, there's a valuable investment of my time and energy, and that person isn't of value, and therefore I will not invest myself. I will not care. I will not share. It's evil judgment. He says, in fact, you become guilty of being evil judges who are involved in evil thoughts. He's not simply trying to say you're being an evil person. He says you don't understand that the source of that kind of discrimination against others is in itself evil. You see, in a, in a sense, if I can put it this way, that justice may in fact be the character of God, but mercy is his heart. Justice may in fact be the character of God, but his heart is that of mercy. The God, again, who is so rich in mercy that he loved us so much. What is he telling us? He says, this is what God is like. That even at this moment as he is looking at you, what is it that's on his heart? Is he seeing what you did yesterday or the day before or that reaction, that behavior, that choice, that sin, that iniquity? Is he focusing on that? Or is he looking at you with the longing heart of a father in mercy? There's a reason why he tells a story like, like the story of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel, chapter 15. Who a son who not only disrespected and really was abusive to his father, but under the laws of that culture, that son should have been taken out and stoned to death for what he did. And the father would have been in all of his right to give him nothing and do more than that, to execute him for his, his disrespect and dishonor. We often miss that side of the story. And yet not only does the father not do that, but when that son comes home after he has wasted everything that was his, that had belonged to his father, think about it, a third of everything his father had had been wasted on things that his father couldn't even imagine of ever giving a penny towards. And he comes back and he stinks. And he's wearing rags. And he's unkempt and he's uncut and he's unshaven. He's just, he's a total mess. If in today's world he would have been covered with tattoos and piercings. <laughs> with blue hair. 
Wait a minute, I'm having a dream. (laughs) And it says, amazingly, the father got up and he runs towards his son. You know, noble, sophisticated Middle Eastern men never get up and run. They take their time because they're important. And yet, he threw off all of that pride And he went running to his son. Why? Some argue that he wanted to get to his son before the townspeople did. He wanted to cover him with his robe and his ring and put sandals on his his feet because if he didn't, the townspeople would have ripped him limb from limb. His mercy made him cover his son's transgressions. Why would he do that? Why would God do that with you and me? I mean, you oftentimes slip into that mindset, don't you? Not not that thinking about what you don't have and how you wish you had and it's not fair and you get caught up in all that kind of cycle of envy and greed and resentments and all that sort of stuff. But when you step back and realize, you know, I have so much more than I ever deserve, that I sat down and I ate food that I didn't really wasn't necessarily promised to me and yet God gives it to me in his graciousness that I drove here in an automobile that may not be the classiest thing but it got me here that I have a Bible that I possess that millions throughout history never could have dreamed of even ever owning one of these books that we take so for granted and the list goes on as we meet here in safety and in comfort knowing that right at this moment there are many of our brothers and sisters around the world who do not have that kind of security or that kind of assurance. As we slip into that kind of mindset, we forget that the thing that gives God the most pleasure is to show you mercy. Mercy, he said, triumphs. It literally glories, it rejoices, it celebrates, it wins out over judgment. So that when Jesus heard those lepers and those beggars and those people with diseases of all shapes and kinds, those sinners that were misbehaving, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and on and on and on, and they came to him and said, have mercy upon me. Jesus' heart just went out to them immediately, went right past everything they'd ever said or done, and all he could do is rejoice. In fact, one of the things he said is all heaven and earth rejoice at one sinner who comes to repentance. And what does it mean to come to repentance? Over and over again it's stated, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Because in the moment that I say that I need mercy, I have already pronounced judgment upon myself. Mercy is not shown to somebody who hasn't done anything wrong. Mercy is shown to people who are guilty. When I say, God, be merciful to me, I'm admitting I'm guilty. Sometimes I'm admitting the guilt that I haven't even figured out I've done, but I'm pretty sure it's there. I figure if I'm breathing, I'm probably sinning. When I say, God, have mercy upon me, there is, I believe, an irresistibility to that cry. And those moments when we let go of our judgments and our bitternesses and our resentments and our hatreds and our jealousy... When we become weary of hoarding our hurts in our own hearts selfishly, 
It's in those moments that God finds his greatest pleasure in you. Because he sees himself most clearly in you when you're asking him for his mercy and even more so when you are showing it to others. This is why James refers to the gospel as the royal law. To love my neighbor as myself requires an act of mercy. I've often said that you can't say you love somebody if you haven't exercised forgiveness towards them. Any of us who are married understand that the way a marriage survives is by saying I'm sorry and having the other one show you mercy. They're not keeping a record of wrongs, as Paul put it, because they have covered it with a merciful heart and a merciful response. They recognize, who am I not to forgive you when God has forgiven me so much, as Paul would explain. This is the royal law. This is, this is the law of life that brings dignity. It's, it's not in being right. It's being in merciful, even though we are right. It's the law, he says, that gives us freedom. It's the thing that sets us free. And I've observed it in myself, I've observed it in others, that the people who are most bound up, who are held in such captivity, are those who have simply categorized other people in such a way that they say, well, I'll never let them hurt me again. I'll never allow them to have space in my life. You know that favorite of first time, shame on you, second time, shame on me. Jesus had a different way of addressing it. He says, how many times should you forgive in a day? Seven times seven, Peter said, <laughs> polishing his nails as he said it. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven every day. At that moment, you know, I'm sure Peter's face lost all of its blood and he thought to himself, wait a minute, that's impossible. It is if your heart is not committed to being merciful. You see, the lack of mercy obscures the love of God, and we no longer see how much he loved us. We, we miss that he loved us without condition. He loved us without qualification. He loved us without any stipulations other than the fact that we said, Lord, have mercy upon me. It's when we find ourselves loving the unlovely and even those we have categorized as the, un categorized as the unlovable without the usual qualifiers that we use in our day of what their social class is, their ethnicity, their nationality, their religion, their economic status, their education, their appearance, or any of the other multiple criteria we use to subdivide the world around us. It's when we no longer allow those things to hinder our ability to be merciful that we begin to experience God's best for us. And when we don't, James says, we just become judges of evil thoughts. Now, God is impartial, does not show favorites, but James tells us this, he does favor some people more than others. And I hope that doesn't sound like a contradiction. But just James tells us of two groups of people that God favors. 
He says in verse 5, listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom of God? He promised to those who love him. I love that qualifier, poor in the eyes of the world. You know, your poverty is viewed as extreme wealth in India, you know that? Your poverty is viewed as extreme wealth. So poverty and riches is a very relative concept. But nonetheless, he says, not that God favors those who are poor, but he favors them because they are rich in faith. Why are they rich in faith? Well, it's interesting. 25 times in the gospel told that it was the poor to whom the good news was preached. Go and tell John that I've healed the sick, the blind are seeing, miracles are taking place, and the gospel is being preached to the poor. Why the poor? It was because we're told also that the common people, and that phrase there, common people, we don't catch that in our, in our language. In, in the language that's used, it means those despicable, ordinary people, those low lives, those everyday plebes, these people who are utterly despised, the common man, which was said quite derisively. These people, they don't know the law, the Pharisees that say, these common men, these oklos. But it says they heard him gladly. I often wonder when we think about the power of Jesus' message that we often associate it, and correctly so. I think that there was the power of the Holy Spirit in him. But it says that the people listened to him because he spoke with authority. What is that authority, friends? Is it simply the Holy Spirit emanating in such power that they can't resist him? Was it, was it the Wonder Woman ang- a wrist bracelets that went <laughs> and fire shot off them? Well, I wish. No. The power of that authority was a merciful, loving God. We don't think about mercy as being a powerful thing. It is the most powerful thing. The most powerful thing you and I can do. But you see, the reason why he said the poor is because, as we saw in the story of Matthew 19 of the rich young ruler, that oftentimes riches and the desire for them become an obstacle to our faith. When Jesus said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so it has been throughout the history of the church of Jesus Christ. It has been the poor, the disenfranchised, those who had less to lose in this world sense and as a consequence had less to give up that were the ones who were more open to the gospel as Paul would even say to the Corinthians brothers think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standards not many of you were influential not many of you were of noble birth he goes on to say God picked basically from the bottom of the pond God was bottom fishing when he found you. God showed up and the runt of the litter was always left. And that's what he took home with him. Not the top of the heap. I love what F.B. Myers once said. He said, uh, the rich man may trust God. The poor man must. 
The rich man may trust God, but the poor man must. He doesn't say you can't know God if you're rich. He says it just makes it more complicated. Or as that great prophet Bob Dylan once said, if you ain't got nothing, you ain't got nothing to lose. Shakespeare and Shelley are turning in their graves right now, right? But there's another group that's also favored, not just those who come in faith, but he favors those who are merciful. In Ephesians 2.4 again, he said, God is, who is so rich in mercy. That's who God is. God is rich in mercy. His great treasure store is not the power in which he can do all things. It's in his mercy. I always wondered in the story of the, the lost coins and the story of the lost sheep, that Jesus would say that when that one lost sheep is found, when that lost coin is found, that all the angels in heaven rejoice. And I thought, that's interesting. 99 sheep don't turn, turn a gear, but one lost sheep suddenly makes him go into excitement. You understand that God says that the thing that brings rejoicing in his heart is those miracles. We don't ever find Jesus getting excited about somebody being healed. He doesn't pray for a, a sick man and the, heal, and the person is healed and then suddenly go, wow, that was pretty good. I think I'll try that again. Oh, God. We don't see him getting excited. I would. You know, I'd have my own TV show. I'd blow on you. You know, I mean, I'd do things to swing my coat around. I mean, I'd put on quite a show. We don't see Jesus doing that. We don't see the angels in heaven rejoicing because Jesus has just raised another man from the grave. But what do we see them rejoicing over when one person comes to him and says, Lord, have mercy upon me for I am a sinner. And this is all of heaven goes ecstatic. That's why he said, if God is this way, you should be this way. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, he said in Luke 6, 36. Because ultimately, blessed are the merciful, for they too will be shown mercy. I said it before, I'll say it again. Being judgmental is easy. Seeing what's wrong with something or someone is so easy. Every time I watch those wrap-ups on the games, we have the commentators saying, well, why did such and such a team lose? And, you know, they go and they break it down, and I, I get the idea, but in the end of the day, I'm not sure that they answer any question. And I know that we all know the easy part is telling somebody why they lost. The hard part is figuring out how to win. And if we go through life always looking at and analyzing why things are broken and aren't working, what's wrong with you, and your problem is this, and you do that, and you should do this, what we're going to do is basically have something, a nice uh, dossier that we can lay out on somebody, but what changes people is God's mercy. That at some point, regardless of anything you've done, anything you've said, how bad you've gotten, when God says, I will have mercy upon you, it answers all the questions and fixes all the problems. Because God says, even though the judgment is just, I'm suspending judgment, and I've decided to show you mercy. The word elios, which is translated mercy most often, is, is really separated from another word that's translated sometimes as mercy as well. But the one word means to feel compassion. The other one means to 
act compassionately and caring. Simple fact is without mercy, there is no progress. Whether you're talking about your personal life, your spiritual growth, uh, the ministry that we're a part of, without mercy, nothing moves forward. And we become entangled in endless judging and recriminations. Isn't that, as we look at our nation right now, isn't our nation basically stuck because all we hear everybody doing is talking about how bad the other person is. And maybe it's all true. But it drives me to a place in my prayer time where I say, God, have mercy upon us. <laughs> have mercy upon us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I hope and my, I pray that as a church we would be known not simply because we study the Bible, not be, simply because we try to be true and faithful to it. Important things. But I hope and pray that what marks us is that we're the fellowship of the merciful that we're merciful to one another, that we forgive. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would drive these things deep into us, Lord. Most of us here are tired of living that kind of Christianity where we, we hear the words and we accept them as being true and we agree with the doctrine and the theology and all the rest of that, but when it's all said and done, Lord, we want to experience the power of God and help us to understand, help us to really grasp that that power is most perfectly expressed, not in being right, but in being merciful. But God, that you said, blessed are those people. Help us to be those who are blessed in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.